Romans chapter 13, verses 11 to 14. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than, we, than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put the Lord Jesus Christ and or put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So some of us remember this weird little thing that happened in Hollywood where we went to see a movie. If you've never seen it, don't bother. It's not that good. Um, but we went to see a movie called First Blood. And then a while later, we got Rambo, First Blood, Part 2. And a while after that, we got Rambo, Part 3. So kind of a strange shift in the whole sequence of titles and series. And something like that is happening here as we speak this morning. Because we started off earlier in the summer with a series on prayer. Lord, teach us to pray. And that kind of led eventually to Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul speaks about prayer as kind of at the very heart of the spiritual warfare in which we are engaged. And once we got there, I started thinking, how many times have I preached Ephesians or Ephesians chapter 6 and we get to the armor of God and I say okay well someday we have to come back and we have to go through this piece by piece and talk about each one and yet I had never done it so I thought well this is the time so this is I don't know part seven or something like that in Lord teach us to pray it's now part two in the armor of God or in a spiritual warfare series we're not going to worry about it too much we're still looking at Ephesians chapter six and I also just wanted to point out in the scripture reading this morning by having Josh read from Romans 13 that there are other places in scripture that talk about the armor of God we often don't think of those. We often think of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20, that text that led us here in our series on prayer, where the Apostle Paul exhorted the church, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Paul exhorts us to do this because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our battle is not with the human beings who very often are acting as instruments of those principalities and powers, but our battle really is against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. We noted last week that Paul does some interesting things linguistically here in Ephesians chapter 6. He picks up that word stand and then he just kind of hammers it. Stand, stand, stand firm. Having done all, stand. Here too, he does that with the word against. Not a word that's very popular these days when we think about taking our stand for the faith. We often don't like to think about the fact that when we stand for the faith that is once for all delivered to the saints, we are also standing against anything that would seek to undermine that faith. And he says this here. We wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. 
It's as if Paul wanted us to be very aware and to be very certain when we go out into the world carrying the message of the gospel that we are going into a world that is no friend to the people of God and no friend to grace and it never will be. If we seek to make ourselves friends of the world, we become enemies of God. And so we just go with this message of grace, this message of forgiveness, knowing that as we do, there will be resistance, there will be opposition, because the devil, the world, and our own flesh never stop attacking us. We need to be ready for that. We need to be ready to stand, and then having done all to stand firm. Noting Paul's repetition of the word stand in his commentary in this section of Ephesians, John Stott comments, the fourfold emphasis on the need to stand or withstand shows that the apostles' concern is for Christian stability. Wobbly Christians who have no firm foothold in Christ are an easy prey for the devil, and Christians who shake like reeds and rushes cannot resist the wind when the principalities and powers begin to blow. Paul wants to see Christians so strong and stable that they remain firm even against the devil's wiles and even in the evil day. That is, in a time of special pressure. I'll interrupt the quote from Scott. I think we're in that now. I think as we look around at the world, as we look at the culture in which we find ourselves, we are in a time of special pressure. A time when what used to be sort of a benign neglect of the church and of the gospel within our culture has shifted from that benign neglect to a more open and active kind of hostility to the message that we preach. It has always been important that we put on the full armor of God, the panoply of God's armor and stand firm. It is even more important in times like this. Stott goes on for such stability, both of character and in crisis, the armor of God is essential. But it's also very important that we note that this spiritual warfare in which we are engaged is not meant to be exclusively defensive. Yes, we're going to find ourselves in times and places where the world, the devil, and even our own flesh are working against us to undermine our faith, to undermine the resolve that we have to live in the truth of Jesus. But we're not meant to be hunkered down and defending ourselves in the armor of God. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. That's very parallel to what he said in Ephesians chapter 6, but watch where he goes. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. The weapons of our warfare, this spiritual armor, these spiritual weapons that God has given us for this battle in which we find ourselves, are intended to be used in an offensive sort of posture. Strongholds in those days were the fortresses where people would hole up to defend themselves against the attack of the enemy. Paul's saying we've been given weapons that we are to use to tear down those strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. See, even while the devil is going around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, that would be 
us, by the way, we are to be tearing down the strongholds that he has built in our culture and society. We are to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, which we could apply to ourselves. We are to bring our every thought into captivity for obedience to Christ. But we do that by destroying the arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. This doesn't fit well in our culture where, as we've mentioned in weeks past, what we want to do is say, well, that's your truth, and that's okay. This is my truth. Let's just live our truths. You do you. And Paul says, no. We go out with the gospel. We go out with the message of Jesus Christ, and we destroy the arguments and every lofty opinion that is raised in this world against the knowledge of God. It won't be easy, and it certainly won't be accomplished without the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We'll come to that some weeks down the road, I guess. But here's the good news. Here's the spoiler. Christ wins. Christ has won. And in Christ, we win. As the hymn writer put it, in his strength, we dare to battle all the raging hosts of sin. And by him alone, we conquer foes without and foes within. As Jesus said on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it because the weapons of our warfare are mighty in the spirit to destroy strongholds and to cast down every lofty imagination that raises itself up against God and against his word. So because Christ wins, we win in Christ. That's the end of the story. It's guaranteed. It can end no other way But that doesn't mean that where we find ourselves in the story, we are not in a war against the evil one. We are. We have not reached that point where every knee has bowed and every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in the meantime, until we do come to that point, which happens when Christ returns at the resurrection of the dead, we need the armor of God. We need the panoply which God has provided for us to stand in this spiritual battle. We need to put on Christ himself. There's a wonderful book. You can find it online. Um, you can still buy it. It's, it's not cheap. Written by William Gurnall in 1655. He was pastor of a church in Suffolk, England. And he wrote a book with the title, The Christian in Complete Armor which is the kind of title we put on the cover today, William Gurnall, being a Puritan, had the title, and then he had the sort of the subtitle, the second title. And in this case, it was the Christian in complete armor, the saints war against the devil wherein a discovery is made of that grand enemy of God and his people in his policies, power, seat of his empire, wickedness, and chief design he hath against the saints. A magazine opened from whence the Christian is furnished with spiritual arms for the battle, helped on with his armor and taught the use of his weapon together with the happy issue of the whole war. That's the title of this book, which is 
runs to, I think, about 1,200 pages or something along those lines. Some of you thought I get carried away with things. But he's trying to get to a point. God has given us everything that we need for this battle in which we find ourselves. Gernalt wrote, in heaven, we shall appear not in armor, but in robes of glory. But here, the pieces of armor specified are to be worn night and day. We don't just put these things on and take them off as we feel we find ourselves in a battle. We put them on And when we wake up in the morning, if we feel like they may have slipped, then we put them on again. We must walk, says Gurnall, work and sleep in them, or else we are not true soldiers of Christ. In this armor, we are to stand and watch and never relax our vigilance, for the saint's sleeping time is Satan's tempting time. Every fly dares venture to creep on a sleeping lion. So we need to hear this exhortation of Ephesians 6, and we need to put on the armor of God, or our text in Romans 13, too, the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Of course, this morning, we're particularly considering the breastplate of righteousness, as Paul calls it in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14, arguably sort of the largest And some might say the most important piece of armor in the Christian's arsenal. I think that case could be made, but we don't ever want to forget that panoply is a singular word. We're not being told to put on the pieces of armor individually. We are being told to put on the whole armor of God. And as we look at the individual pieces, that's okay. But remember, you can't put on the breastplate of righteousness and not the helmet of salvation. It just doesn't work that way. You can't put on the belt of truth and not take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God that hangs from that belt of truth and provides you with the weaponry that you need to go into this battle. So yes, this is the largest and most important piece of the whole and we are to put on the whole. And no wonder Isaiah speaks of God himself putting on righteousness as a breastplate when he goes forth in judgment against his adversaries. And where Isaiah talks about that, where God speaks and says, I put on righteousness as my breastplate and my helmet of salvation, and I went out to judge the adversaries, we get this messianic prophecy in Isaiah 59 verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And so as God speaks of putting on his own armor and going into battle, he speaks at the same time of one who can be none other than our Savior himself, who in the words of R.C. Sproul will come bringing salvation to all who repent and turn from their sins. We see Jesus doing the same thing, putting on the armor. Revelation chapter 19, where John wrote, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And we could go on with that, but... If God is so armored, if Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, judges and makes war in righteousness, then we too must be wrapped in the breastplate of righteousness if we are to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And I think it should be obvious then that the righteousness which we are armored must 
be the righteousness of Christ and not our own righteousness. I want to make this point because in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul said that the devil and all of his hosts are not only evil, they certainly are that, and they're powerful, at least in comparison to ourselves. He said they're also cunning. They're tricksy. And in exhorting us to put on the whole panoply of God's armor, Paul said to do so so that we may stand against the schemes, against the tricks of the devil. And later on, he would characterize those schemes as the fiery darts of the wicked one. I want to point out, he, he, the one person who may have exceeded William Gurnall in an exposition of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20 is Martin Lloyd-Jones. It took him just seven sermons to get to this expression, the schemes of the devil. And then he spent 19 weeks, 19 sermons talking about those schemes, just one at a time, working his way through them, Friday night by Friday night. Among others, he listed cults, counterfeits, philosophy, and vain deceit, discouragement, worry, anxiety. And then he came to sort of a summary sermon in which he addressed the attack of the enemy upon us in the matter of self or the problem of self as it is made acute by the wiles of the devil. And all of those, especially the last one, are subjects that deserve an entire sermon. But for now, understand that while the devil goes by many names and he has many strategies, many fiery darts that he throws at us from time to time, in Revelation chapter 12, the great dragon, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, is also referred to as the accuser of our brothers who accuses them day and night. I've preached through Revelation 12 before and there's much more to it than that. But what we see there is that when Satan discovered that he could not overcome the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the seed of the woman who is prophesied in Genesis 3, he went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That is us. That is the church of Jesus Christ. That is the people of God who have come to him through faith in his son. Satan went off to make war on them, which once again is just the same as what Peter said, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's who he is, it's what he does. We need to be aware of it because Satan is not in any sense creative. We should assume then that when he comes to steal and kill and destroy that he's going to do so using the same old strategies. He always starts, always, and we see it so much in our day, with that old sad question from the Garden of Eden. Did God really say that? Are you sure you understand him? I know that you know the church, New Covenant and Old, for the last 4,000 years has believed this to be the truth, but maybe it didn't get it right. Maybe there's a subtlety of Greek interpretation that you're missing out on. And if you just get a hold of that, you will understand that something which God declared to be an abomination 4,000 years ago, he, he didn't mean that. 
Satan always comes with that first. And if he fails, you know what he does? I think. Then he turns that to an accusation. And he says, well, if God really did say that, how come you don't live that way? The accuser of the brothers was thrown down, but he did not stop with the accusations. And that's why we don't need our own righteousness. Our own righteousness will not stand up to those accusations, whether they are thrown at us spiritually, in the spiritual realm, or whether they come from other people. Paul said that Satan himself appears as an angel of light. No wonder if his ministers appear as ministers of righteousness. Sometimes it seems like really good people are the ones who are accusing, who are trying to take you down, who are trying to make you think that, no, I'm not good enough. There's no way I could ever really serve the Lord. And, you know, because ultimately that's true if we try to be clothed in our own righteousness. We don't need our own righteousness. We need the righteousness of Christ himself. The prophet Isaiah wrote, but we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses, and yes, that's an accurate translation of the word, all of our righteousnesses, all of our deeds of righteousness are as filthy rags. I could go into some depth describing what Isaiah is talking about there, and I'm not going to do it. Just try to imagine facing a roaring lion. Try to imagine facing the devil himself clad in nothing more than the filthy rags of our own righteousness. You work that thought out to its logical end and it is not a happy ending. That's one of the ways that Satan uses to keep us weighed down with guilt and shame on the one hand and self-righteous judgment on the other because at the bottom line, there is none righteous. No, not one. Not those of you who feel guilt and shame for the things that you've done. Not those of you who judge those who feel guilt and shame for the things that they have done. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is no one who does good. No, not one. As we are taught in the Heidelberg Catechism, even the best that we do, the very best that we do in this life is imperfect and stained with sin. That's me, certainly. That's you. That's whoever it is that you think sums up the very best of the very best of Christian humanity. There is none righteous, no, not one. Well, there's one. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who was given to set us completely free and to make us right with God, so that by the power of his divinity he might earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. When Paul is hammering that point as he does at the beginning of Romans chapter 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. They have all together turned aside and become unprofitable. There is no one who does good. No, not one. 
he's clearly building to the point where he's going to introduce us to the exception. And the exception is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And it's his righteousness and his alone that can serve as the breastplate to defend us from the attacks and the accusations of the evil one. If we try to stand in our own strength, if we try to stand in the filthy rags of our own righteousness, Satan comes along and he says, oh, you, you hypocrite. I know what you did. I know how you are. And if we're honest with ourselves, we say, um, yeah, got that right. But if we are standing armed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, Satan comes along and says, I know who you are. And yeah, but have you met Jesus? <laughs> have you met him? I think you have. I think you know who he is. If we try to stand in the filthy rags of our own righteousness, we will certainly fail. We will go down to defeat in this spiritual battle, as the Heidelberg says. But in Christ, we are right with God and heirs to life everlasting, and we are in Christ if we have come to trust in him alone as the only source of eternal salvation and life. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, because we can never attain to God's standard of righteousness, God sent his only son into this world in order that he might be able to give us righteousness. He came, the spotless, sinless Son of God, and he rendered a perfect obedience to God's law, obeyed him in every jot and tittle of the law. He lived a perfectly righteous life. But more than that, he made himself responsible for all our sins. He bore them in his own body and was crucified for them. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. And as we trust in him alone, we are made right with God through true faith. And when that is true, when we have trusted in him alone, this next bit from the Heidelberg Catechism is the result, and I want to encourage you to say this with me. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if I had never sinned, nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. You put on the breastplate of Christ's righteousness, and when the accuser of the brothers comes in whatever guise he may come and says, yeah, but I know you. I know your heart. You say, yeah, God knew my heart, and God sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to pay for all of that garbage. And he no longer looks at me as a sinner condemned and under his wrath and curse. He looks at me as if I had never sinned or been a sinner. As if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is accept this gift with a believing heart. 
That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to be wrapped in the righteousness of Christ, to put on the breastplate of his righteousness. Even so, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the breastplate of his perfect righteousness and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. For this is the will of God for you, even your sanctification. May we pray. Father in heaven, it's so easy for us to hear the accusations of the evil one and to let those drag us down, to fill us with guilt and shame, to fill us with sorrow and regret for the things that we have done and the things that we have failed to do. And there's nothing to be gained by trying to polish up the filthy rags of our own righteousness. They're not even worthy to polish the breastplate of Christ's righteousness. So help us, Lord, to just cast off the works of darkness, all of those things that we know are contrary to your will, and help us to put on the armor of light, to put on the breastplate of the righteousness of Christ as we go forth into the world today and throughout this week. That, Father, as we face the spiritual forces that are arrayed against us, we may do so with complete confidence, knowing that because you have said you will never leave us or forsake us, and because we are wrapped in Christ himself, we can say, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? What can anything or anyone do to me? Father, be to us now our refuge and our strength, a very present help in all the times of trouble that we face. Surround us with your love and mercy and grace and continue to work, Father, through your word and through your spirit in our hearts, in our lives, in our behavior, all that is pleasing to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, our faithful Savior, in which we pray, amen.